Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hello, we're back. This is Everything Else, the FT Culture Podcast. Welcome to Series 5. This week, we'll be talking about the Football World Cup. What are our hopes for Russia 2018 and what are we dreading? And later, I'll be speaking to the groundbreaking choreographer Akram Khan about his latest work, Zenos. Everything else is going to be fortnightly, so we can bring you more great guests and discussion. Al, welcome back to the studio. Thank you. It's very nice to have you here. It's extremely nice to be here. So you're off? Yes. We had a baby, and the baby was born with a very, very rare genetic mutation called diamond black anemia, which uh, means that he can't make his own red blood cells. So I was off dealing with lots of hospitals for several months. But apart from not being able to make hemoglobin, uh, he's absolutely tip-top. <laughs> and uh, he's a very happy, oddly handsome little boy <laughs> called Rufus. Look, well, Rufus looks extremely handsome in the pictures I've seen of him and extremely sweet. Thank you. So we've we've tweaked the podcast a little bit. It's now a a sports podcast. Is it? Well, this week it is. We'll be looking at Russia 2018 tournament that you're most excited <laughs> that about. That I'm in very the world. excited about. Uh, so everything else has taken a kind of sporty turn for and the worst, for the best. No, for the best. And <laughs> and football is culture anyway, isn't it? So it belongs on a culture podcast. What do they say? The beautiful game. Yeah, like a beautiful painting. <laughs> or a stage. Indeed, it's a like great a stage. drama playing out before us. Which is good because. Sarah Hemming is about to come into the studio to teach us all about football. Sarah is an FT theatre critic and contributed to the magazine's brilliant football special a couple of weeks ago. She wrote about the great Uruguayan Luis Suarez. And that issue was edited by Neil O'Sullivan, who will also be with us. He wrote about Mesut Ozil, the uh, German playmaker. Neil is a great expert on football as... uh, you are too. I am, as you are about to hear. Great. You can find all these pieces at ft.com slash World Cup. Thank you for coming in. First, I think we should gauge general levels of excitement for this World Cup. How excited are we, Neil? Very excited, actually, yeah. I've had quite a bad season watching my club team, Arsenal, and I'm hoping that this will be a relief after that and just the ticket yeah just give me some enjoyment from football (laughs) by the quality of the football or or the quality of the drama the drama more than the football I think a lot of the enjoyment out of the World Cup doesn't come from seeing brilliant teams but from the moments that are created so you'd say maybe a 10 out of 10 in terms of your own enthusiasm Certainly. Is that, is that sit about it's getting right? that way. Yeah. Is that the same for you, Sarah? I try to avoid getting excited because it's um, the hope that causes ultimate despair, of course. It's the hope that kills you. And this morning I heard the football commentator utter the dread words, 
cautious optimism <laughs> about England's chances. And I thought, oh no, here we go. You can't help it. There's something very exciting about the World Cup. All that enthusiasm, all those teams turning up, all those fans, all the kits, all the nonsense that goes on around it. Yeah, I am. So I, my um, excitometer is going up. I'm probably around okay. about eight now. Okay, good. And same for you, Chris? Well, having read Neil's special issue of the magazine, all about the World Cup, I, I'm now pretty excited. I have to say, I was not excited beforehand, not being a football fan. Okay, so you'd say maybe like a four out of ten. Yeah, tops. Okay. Well, okay. <laughs> well, I'm, I'm, I'm a sort of, I'm a sort of lukewarmish sort of seven or eight. I think uh-huh. um, I don't really care about England because I was brought up in Scotland. So it used to be that I just long for England to go out as early and as humiliatingly as possible. Now I don't really care about them so much because I haven't really heard of most of the England team, which is a relief because it's not... Previously it was that sort of golden generation of John Terry and um, other sort of slightly unattractive people. But so I think Neil has heard of them. <laughs> <I> think, <laughs> yeah, there are a Just couple. a few. Yeah. So you'll be nervous then, Sarah, because of you want England to win. Uh, yeah, do I want England to win? I don't want England to lose too humiliatingly, perhaps. I mean, maybe that's um, one of the interesting things I think about England in recent tournaments has been the kind of constant fine adjustment of expectation levels. And over recent tournaments, one of the things has been watching my children slowly get inured to disappointment with each passing <laughs> tournament. They used to get so excited and they used to get all dressed up and we all used to go around to each other's houses and it was brilliant. And then gradually, you know, you got used to sort of carrying sobbing children home and they gradually sort of <laughs> grew hardened and their but primary that's useful, school isn't it? because that is that's, is a lesson, that's experience like, yes, of life yeah. isn't it yeah increasingly um, disappointing the trouble is as i said earlier i think it's just that you start off i'm not going to be nervous i'm not going to care i'm not going to care it's just and then you get sucked in don't you they have one good match and then you get all excited again it's the awful roller coaster is that what you're feeling as well grizz I mean, I can relate to Sarah, to your children, because my the last time I really properly engaged with football was World Cup 98. I think I was um, 11. And David Beckham being sent off the pitch for kicking yeah. somebody, yeah. which I felt was deeply unfair. Now actually having reviewed the YouTube footage, I think, yeah, fair enough. <laughs> probably shouldn't have done that. I mean, I sobbed. I cried for days. I wouldn't get out of bed. I was absolutely distraught. Are you OK now? Yeah, I mean, I've just about recovered. I've put 20 years between it and, um, yeah, I'm back. <laughs> will, will you be nervous, Neil? Not really, no. I kind of, my parents are Irish, so I always had a foot in two camps. Yeah. So I never, I was always a bit ambivalent about it. Neither camp that good, though. <laughs> Neither camp that good, yeah. Sort of hedged my bets in a way that was uh, completely useless. Um, but I think what Sarah says, like cautious optimism is, is better than what it used to be, which was incautious optimism. <laughs> but why, why did we have that? Back in 98, you know, you had players like Beckham, Rooney and you had Gaza before that. So you always had sort of superstar celebrity players and we thought that they were the sort of, they were the best and that therefore England were the best and that we actually thought we could go there and win the tournaments. But each time it kind of like went wrong in sort of variety of ways. There were high expectations and then there was high disappointment, whereas now there are, there are definitely lower expectations. Why are England so bad at football? We have good players, we have an expensive league, we have, they have nice training pitches and the FA has good facilities, yeah. why? Well, I don't know actually that we are that bad. We are under 17s of the world champions last year, under 19s I think of the European champions last year. Does that normally translate? Uh, well no, this, that is the issue really, is that it's, we didn't used to, I think, win those tournaments 
but what it suggests I think is that there's a, a problem where these kids are now as talented as the foreign kids used to be it's not a problem of technique like it used to be said that the English players weren't as good technically I think the youngish players now probably are sort of on a level technically but what happens between 19 and the national team is that a lot of the players don't get the chance to play at the top level for the top teams and so their development is still because we have better foreign players one of the reasons is that yeah the top teams just buy 60 million pound right backs you know someone like Alexander Arnold at Liverpool who's a 19 year old local kid that is very much a rarity and sure enough he's in the squad he's got into the England squad after his first season so if you get the chance I think those kids are good and they could come through and we might see because they've been taught in a way at the, through the levels that has helped them to win tournaments they could maybe win tournaments again So what are we most hoping for out of this World Cup? One of the things I love about the World Cup is it's a fantastic sort of circus a festival of football if you like but it's all the sideshows, all the wonderful things that go alongside like you know the the famous three yellow cards. Actually, what I'm most hoping for is another animal oracle, like Paul, the German octopus, who could predict matches. <laughs> predict any result. In yeah. 2010. And um, he was amazing. And apparently he got all the results right, uh, certainly all the Germany results right, and became an absolute celebrity. I mean, this is the sort of bad thing that can only happen during then the Then ended up on someone's plate. And, well, and, they, and <laughs> he was so accurate about Germany beating Argentina, apparently, that an Argentine chef posted online an, an octopus recipe. It's a bit so harsh, isn't it? it's the sort of craziness of it, I think. And the, the heroes and villains, mm. um, the heroes like that Mexican goalkeeper, last tournament, I think it was, Guillermo Ochoa, was it? Who had a madness of a game, an absolutely sensational game against Brazil, and ended up on the front cover of Time magazine and things like this and became an internet meme. So you talk about heroes and villains, is there a kind of theatrical element? There's all the ingredients of a good drama. As a theatre critic, do you see football in the same way? Well, yes. I mean, there's that funny thing, isn't it? That often as a theatre critic, what you go to see is um, a play that you know what the ending's going to be, but it's how you get there. In football, it ought to be the opposite, but actually it's generally the same. It's the uh, it's the old thing of Germany winning in the end, isn't it? But yes, it is. It's the antics along the way. And it's the, the, yes, you do get heroes, you get villains, you get an enormous comedy. You get outrage. I mean, the ghost goal in uh, the game between Germany and England. Was it Which year was that? Oh, was that I think 2010? it was 2010. 2010. Yeah, uh, uh, yeah South Africa. When the whole so. world saw the ball yeah. cross the line, but the ref didn't, so it wasn't given. Yeah. So there's, you know, all the comedy, <laughs> um, the crazy commentary as well. There's, um, do you remember which one it was, near where there was um, one of, they had Ronaldinho, Ronaldo and Reynaldo all playing, <laughs> and one of them scored. And there was a fabulous bit of commentary from a very, very excited Brazilian commentator who went... <laughs> Ronaldinho or something like that and it's all that it's, it's that's what I love it is yes there are opportunities for arias and all sorts yeah. and it's not just about good football is it no. it's very often not I went back through I've been watching World Cup since about 1986 and all of the standout moments are basically sort of either something non-football related or something really bad like Maradona's hand of God goal or Beckham getting sent off or you know things things like that beyond that given that it's in Russia Presumably we all want a little whiff of scandal. I mean, I don't want doping really, or, <laughs> or hooliganism like to be fixed. But, but Russia's obviously very good at coming up with you know, misbehaviour stories of their own. Do you think we can you hope mean, for that? 
Russia lose 5 0 and it. They start poisoning five, people. 5 0, they win. Or, yeah, they just change you? the result. Oh. <laughs> because, I mean, it's true that they are the worst team, aren't they, apart from maybe Saudi Arabia? Yeah, they're, just, uh, they're the lowest ranked apart from Saudi Arabia. So that's an, ex- teams that's an exciting them. opening match then, <laughs> between Saudi Arabia <laughs> yeah, and, and Russia. And, and in fact, yeah, there's some sort of suggestion that they might have been given that match because it might be one that they can kick off. It's the only the one. <laughs> yeah. Why are Russia so bad? Ten years ago, Russia were actually pretty good and they got to the last four of the European Championships in 2008 and one of their teams won the UEFA Cup that year. They were good then and then they kind of got quite a lot of money came into the game, I think, from oil and I think they maybe just kind of went a bit mad on the money and one of the things they apparently did was paid the homegrown Russian players too much money which meant that rather than go to leagues that were more competitive abroad, they stayed in Russia in Easy Street and didn't develop as players. And now they're kind of seeing that that's kind of um, had an impact on their national team. So it's a shame to be so bad if if you're hosting it, isn't it? It's embarrassing. It is. The only team that has gone out in the first round that's hosted it was South Africa in 2010. And that's kind of different case because Russia have actually... A bit more international goodwill for South Africa. <laughs> yeah, exactly, yeah. yeah. It would be interesting to see or to watch Putin and how he... When is he a football fan, do we know? Hockey is his game. Ice oh, hockey, oh, yeah. yeah. That and sort of uh, <laughs> riding on horses. Um, I suspect he, like any world leader, he's a football fan when there's a World Cup uh, <laughs> yeah. going on in, in his country. So, Chris, what are you hoping for? I mean, I have fairly low expectations. But, yeah, some scandal would be good. Some. You're hoping for England, to, England to do well or, or get knocked out early so that people stop talking about it? Well, like you, Al, I also grew up in Scotland, but I don't harbour... Hence the accent. A, yeah, huge resentment for the English team. I'd quite like to see them win. I guess the best outcome for me would be if this World Cup unlocks a lifelong passion for football. <laughs> well, you're about to marry a passionate football fan, so that would help. Well, exactly, help, so I think, you know, I should start now. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you could watch a match of the day together. Yeah. <laughs> and what are we most dreading? Well, one of the things that I'm slightly scared of is it being a bit boring. <laughs> I think, like, the European Championships in 2016, I think, were uneventful in the way that we're saying that what we really like is these kind of, like, um, That's because we were all getting swept up in for voting for Brexit. <laughs> it might have been, yeah. One different thing about the World Cup now is that everyone being a bit more familiar with different teams, different countries, different players from different parts of the world, there's less that kind of feeling of culture clash about it in the way that you used to get. Teams like Uruguay used to turn up and you knew nothing about any of the players, you'd never seen them before, and then they'd come and kick the living... <laughs> daylights out of um, of your team you'd be really surprised and sort of appalled and everything but whereas now you know we know who plays for Uruguay they all play for the top teams in Europe as a result you know they're all a bit more pally and there's less kind of needle but there's always Sergio Ramos to, yeah. <laughs> to, to, kind of, to, to supply some of that I'm hoping Argentina are going to win just simply because <laughs> just put it out there because I want Messi to win I think that would be a That'd be a nice drama, wouldn't it? Yeah, so I'm, but I'm dreading. The one thing I hate is the reprisals. As you see, you know, when Rob Green, do you remember he, 2010, was it? Let one go through his legs, and it's just the poor guy. I don't think just ever recovered. And he's like, I looked him up just before we came on. He's like, it's not even the first eleven for Huddersfield. <laughs> and then there was that uh, Colombian back who scored an own goal, and then he got shot for it. You know, I think that these, I think the, the reprisals, like if you don't do well, I think it can be a desperately lonely thing being watched by hundreds of millions of people 
Well, yeah. Beckham got a terrible <clears throat> stick for that sending off back in 98, didn't he? Yeah. I mean, he was kind of I mean, I was angry for about weeks it. after. Yeah. <laughs> Griselda <laughs> started <laughs> the backlash <laughs> and it just rolled on from there. But well, then he came it. back and he captained as a team, didn't yeah. he? Yeah, no, he, yeah. So you can come back from it. I mean, it's, yeah, Beckham you know, could come back from anything. And social media has quite a short memory, I think. Yeah, absolutely. Should England be going at all, given, you know, the poisonings going on in <laughs> Salisbury and elsewhere? Do you think we should be going? Oh, we yes. should be boycotting yeah. it and saying no well, to Vladimir Putin. As we all Putin. know, sport rises above politics all the time. Okay. The only thing, I mean, I, I think in terms of dreading, what exactly what you were saying, Neil, is, is the boring, actually. If they, I do remember watching one England match. There were two commentators and one of them said, I can't think of anything to say. Can you think of anything to say? And the said, That's no, funny. I can't think of anything to say either. It was so dull. I mean, it would be good to avoid that. It's penalties as well. I think penalties are so cruel, aren't they? I, yes, I'm hoping we will do not penalties. Penalties are the bit of football that I love. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> oh. start, you, don't, you don't really need to know anything. It's just, um, is it going in or, or not? Yeah, the drama so, reduced and it's, So it's a sort of, like, yeah, you've got two options and so the tension. The tension is really <laughs> you miss, though. I mean, you know, t- yes, the, the shame, again, the shame of, of it. I mean, should we be going... Well, everyone else is going. We, I suppose we best turn up, hadn't we? I mean, really. But at least then we're going to win, aren't we? I well, mean, come on. at least then we wouldn't. If <laughs> we didn't go, win. then we wouldn't lose humiliatingly. We would have the moral high ground. Finally, who's going to win, Grizz? Well, Mexico, obviously, because that's who I've got in the sweepstake. Okay, it's, a, it's a long shot. That. It would be it would be a, it'd be a great result for Mexico if that happened. And for Neil, me. I went with Spain last week in the magazine. Uh, I almost went for France, so I'm going with. Spain or France? I'd well, I got France in the Sweet Six. I wouldn't mind if they, yeah. you know. I'd love someone like Iceland or something like that. That'd be great. <laughs> um, um, or Egypt, obviously, with the wonderful Mo Salah. Yeah. But in the magazine, I thought said I thought Brazil would win, so I better seem like I know my own mind. And yes, I think Brazil probably. <laughs> <laughs> I think Brazil is certainly in with a strong chance this time. Thank you for coming on the podcast. Thanks. Thank Thanks. you. So, Grace, you've interviewed Akram Khan. Yes, Akram Khan is one of the most exciting choreographers working in contemporary dance today. His, he's British, grew up in London of Bangladeshi origin, and his style blends Katak, which is a classical Indian dance, with more contemporary movements. I went to see one of his shows last week called Zenos at Sadler's Wells. He, so he's 43 now, and this was actually his last full-length solo performance. I've seen him quite a few times, so it was quite a, a poignant farewell. He's on the stage by himself um, with musicians, but, but he's really the only dancer. He's telling a story of a dancer turned soldier in the trenches in the First World War from India fighting for Britain and what it was like to be a colonial soldier. So he's a sort of everyman character. Was it good? It was really striking. He um, One of the things he does really well is the overall stage picture so scenery colors costumes he dances with these kind of traditional bells strapped around his ankles and he uses them almost like musical instruments he's worked a lot with with artists Anish Kapoor Anthony Gormley and he's got this very visual sense I don't think all dancers and choreographers do quite and he's kind of noticeable because of that I went to an exhibition actually that he curated himself in Manchester a few years ago and he'd brought together all the artists who he loves and they're all people who are interested in the body and all his shows like Xenos have this very striking rich colours, amazing very strong lighting they're very emotional, um, political in this case 
the idea of what happens to a soldier after war, what how we look after soldiers, what the psychological impacts might be, and especially someone who's not fighting for his own country. Xenos is now on tour and worth catching. It's going all around Europe and then we'll be at the Edinburgh Festival. Wonderful. Let's listen. Akram, thank you so much for coming into the FT. Thank you. I want to start by talking about Xenos. Can you tell me what drew you to the stories of these colonial soldiers who fought for Britain in the First World War? What was it about their stories? I think it was several things, really. One was anger. One was curiosity. That drew me towards their stories. Because um, these are not stories that that were told that we really know about. No, yeah. and we never studied it in school. We studied history, but it's a whitewash, really. You know, there's a saying: "Until the lions have their say, the hunters will always tell the story. The victors have always written history, mm. but they've also edited history. You always get one perspective." or several perspectives, but not a 360 perspective. Xenos was really inspired. The initial inspiration was the story of Prometheus. We wanted to relate it to a particular war, and First World War was somehow the backstory, if you like. But somewhere through the process, it took precedent. Prometheus became the backstory and got absorbed into the colonial soldier story based in the First World War. I think partly because of timing there was one article that said i thought remembrance was a white thing and it was a guy from india who works in this country he had done some research about his grandparents or great-grandparents i can't remember and and basically he discovered that they were involved in the first world war and Mm. i kind of clicked with that because i always thought that was a a white thing (laughs) even though i'm not really so conscious of color i'm really bad with color especially when it comes to costumes what do, you, what do you mean by that? <laughs> I'm a bit colorblind, I think. I don't differentiate things with color. You know, when I was a teenager, I was working at my dad's restaurant and there was racism. There was a lot of racism in the, the late 80s, early 90s. So this was in South London? Yeah, where you South grew London, up. where yeah. I grew up. Yeah. And in the summer holiday, I would work for my father in his restaurant. I remember thinking of my color then, but then I didn't think about it because in dance, somehow, there are less walls. I'm not saying there aren't walls, but there are less walls than there are, for example, in theatre or film. Why do you think that is? Why does the the real-life racism of the outside world seep into theatre more than it would into dance? I don't know, actually. For me, it's something to do with the body. Even if it has a cultural reference, it's also about the spirit. Somehow the body is universal for me. Also in dance, there's this power of um, to explore ambiguity. In theatre and film, film perhaps you have characters okay this character is this color he's from this background and so you're looking for specific looks and types of people whereas the power of ambiguity allows you to be kind of colorless really even gender i have an issue with because only until recently have i been focusing on gender it doesn't matter if you're a man or a woman. It's about, do you speak to me through your body more powerfully than somebody else? If it is, I'm taking you. So you, know, you wouldn't choreograph be. differently for a, for a female dancer than for a male dancer, necessarily? Now, yes, because I work more with characters. But previously, no. I was kind of in those realms of the androgynous. I'm not going to talk about the ballet world because I don't know enough about it. But I definitely feel in the contemporary dance world 
there's far less racism. I have so many actors, friends who are actors who maybe look Middle Eastern, but actually they're Italian. <laughs> and, you know, they would say, oh, I'm just waiting for my next terrorist role. Mm. There are huge issues in theatre and film with actors. But in dance, I, perhaps that's what drew me. I felt free somehow in the well, dance. I think it's, it's interesting that it feels like in, in the British theatre scene in the last, say, 10 years, we have been moving away a little bit from this kind of traditional reliance that we have on text. And we've been embracing more European directors and styles and things. And at the same time, contemporary dance has become a much bigger thing than it was 15 years ago. And I wonder in a way if if audiences are becoming more used to a different way of watching something that's quite different, that's more abstract, that's not about these very fixed characters and about words. There is a shift. There is a bigger interest in the contemporary scene. Perhaps people don't want to be told what it is. There is the power of choice. When you see a contemporary performance, dance performance, if there's a thousand people, you're going to get a thousand different perspectives. Whereas when I do classical work, it's very codified. And there is a narrative usually that people know. They already know the story. So there's nothing to invent. It's like reading a book and watching a film. When you read a book, the character you visualize is your interpretation of that character based on what you're reading. But when you see a film, it's given to you. And yet, with your Giselle, which has proved so popular, you're taking a, you know, a traditional ballet that people know well and they love and making it very different and giving people a quite a fresh interpretation. Yeah, I think from what you're discussing, let's relate it to Xenos. Mm -hmm. Because Xenos means stranger or foreigner or alien in Greek, i.e. xenophobia. When I was creating Giselle, there was this kind of rise of xenophobia, particularly in that period. And also there was a huge migration of people from Syria and from that part of the world. And um, the sense of being displaced became very evident. We have a very specific interest in those countries, particularly their material. <laughs> and so we create chaos and they get displaced when they need support we turn our back. So my work is more and more connected to the present. I don't want to just say political, but it's in the present. The Giselle that I saw, the classical version, which is beautiful, but first of all, I can't imagine a girl being like that because I grew up with bloody feminist women all around me, <laughs> like my mother uh, and now my wife and my daughter. And you have a daughter. Five, mm -hmm. and she's definitely not the typical Giselle. She'll whack you around and beat me up and all that. She's a very strong character. So three females in my life, particularly my mother. You know, she was a feminist. Since I was born, I remember her being a feminist. So when I see Giselle, I don't see her as sweet and coy. Not that that's wrong, but that's from a male perspective. And I think a lot of mythological characters, females, are written by males. So it's how men want to see women. And so I didn't want to see Giselle in the way men wanted to see women. I wanted to represent my mum or my wife. You know, I wanted to be able to fall in love with someone who's strong and who's fierce and, and fragile. Has becoming a father changed your relationship to the world? You talked about your, your work now being more engaged, not necessarily political, but more aware of things. 
Yes, it has changed because they represent the present to the future. We have really messed it up. Our generation yeah. and the previous generation have really messed it up for them. I had a really good childhood and the world was all right. It wasn't entirely all right, but it was okay. And now the cracks are there because we see ourselves in isolation from the other. We need each other. It's as simple as that. What happens in Syria, the repercussions arrives here. Unfortunately, we think it's isolated, but it's not. But the new generation, there's really hope in them. They, hopefully with technology, take our civilization into a better place. Well, there's a kind of there's a political awareness about people my age younger than me much younger than me absolutely that, that, that feels that was um, not there hopeful. before yeah mm. politically engaged i was never politically engaged not in the way i am now but the young generation wow they are they don't want our systems anymore that we set up there's a sense of overthrow yeah you know like the arab spring mm. and there is the power in the people going back to when you were young when you were a child growing up in london you learnt katak dance from from when you were quite young can you tell me about that process did you did you take to it immediately not not really i didn't take to it i did it because um my parents told me to do it i was really just interested in michael jackson <laughs> and uh bruce lee and muhammad ali and charlie chaplin i love charlie chaplin and i just wanted to do that kind of work you know that kind of physicality katak was too strict you know it was a classical form i only appreciated it much later when I was in my teens, late teens. But funnily enough, it was just in that process of going to the class. Once I started the class, I forgot the rest of the world. Once my body started to move, it didn't matter. Do you still have that feeling when you start to dance? On stage, yes. Not so much in the studio. Not so much in rehearsal or practice. But on stage, yes. I forget the world around me, not who I am. I feel at home. But um, off stage, I feel a foreigner, stranger. And Zenos is your a sort of farewell to performance. It's your final no, solo. No, my final full-length solo. Yes. But not to performance. I'm definitely not stopping performing. But it, but it's a stepping back, if not a farewell. Absolutely. Absolutely. From full-length solos, yeah. Um, I'm tired of negotiating with my body. My body's too cheeky and too... <laughs> just really naughty. It doesn't just, do what you want anymore, no, necessarily. No. It does everything I don't want to do. <laughs> It just wants to rest all the time. In, in all seriousness, I, I feel um, I feel a kind of a strong resistance from my body for full-length work. I mean, short bursts of dancing, it's fine for me, but not an hour to carry an entire show for an hour and five minutes is hard. One of the things that you're known for is collaborating with artists from outside the dance world. So Juliette Binoche, Anthony Gormley, Anish Kapoor, these people who have worked with you. Is there something that, people can bring from outside dance into a work that you're creating? Oh, absolutely. They bring so much more than one can imagine, even composers. and But particularly, I mean, composers and dance, choreographers, of course, go together, but visual artists is, or filmmakers really teach me a lot. It's about 360, right? Perspective, history I was talking about should be 360. We should hear all the angles. We should see all the angles. Only then can we understand the centre of it. So thinking about, you know, what a sculptor might bring to dance. Yeah. So even a cup, for example, I will look at the movement of it or the shape of it. A sculptor may look at something else from their artistic perspective. The composer perhaps may look at the sound or try and f discover the sound of that object. 
we're all talking about the same subject, but we're coming in from different angles. Can you tell me a bit about the process of creation? Does it take a long time to make a new work? Yeah, it does. To my company's dismay, but they're very supportive. I take a year to come up with something and collect or gather a team of collaborators for that particular subject. Once we've collected the team, we're all continuously throwing into the Dropbox our thoughts and ideas based on that subject. Images, um, poetry, text, films, anything that surrounds that notion of that subject. And then the third year is the creation. And even then I take around 12 weeks. But even before that 12 weeks, in that third year, we have this thing called playtime, play period, where we, we literally bring all the images and ideas into that room and explore without a sense of trying to create it for a production. We just play, like children. And then we spend 12 weeks preparing it. Which is your favourite part of the process? The beginning and the end. The middle's the hard work. But I love the beginning because anything is possible at that moment. And the end is because nothing is possible. You're there. The middle is just bloody hard work. (laughs) Agram, thank you so much for talking to me. Thank you. Thank you for having me. That's it for this week. Akram Khan Zenos is touring to France, Spain and the Netherlands before coming to the Edinburgh Festival in August. You can find all the dates and buy tickets at akramkhancompany.net. And you can read all of the FT's World Cup coverage, including pieces by our podcast guests Neil and Sarah, at ft.com slash worldcup. In our next episode, we'll be looking back to 1968 and what protest looks like 50 years on. And Al will be speaking to the Scottish comedian Fern Brady as she prepares for her show at the Edinburgh Festival. If you'd like to be in touch, we'd love to hear from you at facebook.com slash everythingelsepodcast or by email everythingelse at ft.com. And if you like what you hear, please leave us a rating or review on Apple Podcasts. Everything Else is produced by Chica Airs. We've been Chris and Al and our music is by Fatima. <laughs>